This is a relay project. The discourse starts right now with Cheryl Oates and Erica Barudis. Welcome to the discourse. We've got another jam-packed episode for you as the legislative session wraps. But first, we've got a question from another listener to kick things off. Former Premier and leader of the official opposition, Rachel Notley. Hi there, guys. Uh, Congratulations on your new podcast. Uh, Not surprisingly, I'm sure. uh, I'm really pleased to have a chance to ask you a question to talk about. And um, my question is uh, related to the Canada Pension Plan. We've been all over the province. We've been hearing from people by email, by petition, online, and of course, in person. And I gotta tell you, it's somewhere between 80 and 98% of people who want the UCP to keep their hands off of their hard-earned pension. So why then is Daniel Smith continuing to barrel ahead with this particular plan when businesses don't want it, accountants don't want it, Albertans don't want it, um, and and everybody thinks that uh, it's going to undermine our economic growth. What's going on here? What's the real agenda? Erica, she makes a great point and asks a really thoughtful question. Do you want to take the lead on this? What? Sorry, Cheryl, you, I was just gasping there that you agree <laughs> with Rachel Notley. I feel like we've been out of politics long enough um, and like been in the private sector. You can admit when it's, when it's a, a political soapbox and uh, she might want to get off of it. But um, I would say what she's trying to do is, and you said this in our very first episode, you said that, you know, opposition focuses during session or, you know, at any given point on two to three issues. And this is what Rachel Notley is focusing on, um, you know, her numbers and who's in the room, I would probably bet a pretty penny that uh, there's a lot of people that hold NDP memberships that come to conventions and that were probably at rallies for Rachel Notley during the election that are in those rooms. So, you know, I, I understand why she's trying to run on this narrative but I'm getting pretty sick of the the political grandstanding that we're seeing and I actually think what we're gonna see by Albertans is that shift that shift in you know I I appreciate someone you know hearing me out that I don't want the pension but I think she's making it too political now and leaning too hard in that I think it's actually gonna turn people off like from politics, uh, this is this is the sign where people, you know, why people get sick of hearing from politicians. This is a prime example. I, I totally, totally disagree. Although I think what you just said could be applied to many issues. And I think certainly there is a point where people sort of re- reach their satura- saturation and they get sick of hearing about an issue, especially if it's an issue with super hot rhetoric. I don't think this is one of those issues. I think if you look at what the NDP has done, which is consultations across Alberta, which they continue to do, um, they've tried really hard to make those sessions nonpartisan. And I think they've done a pretty good job other than, you know, as you've said before, there's a few hot um, pieces of rhetoric. I mean, they're going in saying, you know, we have an agenda to to stop the the government from moving us Alberta out of CPP. Um, But those sessions have been flooded with people who do not hold NDP memberships. They've been attended by people who are conservative supporters who come to talk on behalf of leaving CPP and starting an Alberta pension plan. Um, And I think on top of the fact that this is just, I mean, I think damaging to the, the UCP's credibility, this is a huge, huge data grab 
for the NDP, who have hundreds of people showing up at sessions across this province who have never engaged with the party or the caucus before. And so for the caucus to be able to pick up that data on every session across this province, it's not only adding to the political narrative, but it's a big win for them in terms of organization. So interesting because, like, you know, our listeners aren't always as as engaged as we are. Data in the world of politics is like it's like political gold. You don't go anywhere unless you're going to pick up data, get contact information, be able to reach out. So for sure, I'll give bonus points for using outreach on a quote unquote nonpartisan event for political gain. Like st- strategically, that's very smart. And, and I wouldn't doubt that that's what they would be doing. So Rachel asked a question that said, what's the hidden agenda? I think you just answered what the NDP's hidden agenda is, is to go across Alberta and get a bunch of data for what I believe heavily uh, left-leaning individuals, but, you know, even grasping some maybe progressives or people that are far right but don't agree with the pension, you know, they're getting a big data grab, like you said. So that's their hidden agenda. I Okay, actually, but it can't be both. It can't be these are all NDP supporters okay, they're, they're and doing it, they're doing a political a grab. grab. Okay, they're doing, they're doing a data grab. We'll leave partisanship or ideology out of it. They're using this this these town halls as political capital and gaining data that is what the opposition does right you find an issue you find something the government has moved forward on and you you know tap into how the public is feeling especially if they're opposed to it and you organize them and you stand up for them and you echo their feelings and if in the process you get their phone number, that's an added bonus for the caucus. Um, But I think what you're seeing across the province is that people haven't had an outlet. They haven't had a real consultation. They haven't been able to look someone in the eye and say, I'm worried about what it would mean for my pension if we pulled out of CPP. And I mean, we've talked about this before. The NDP is doing this because the UCP has left a massive gap in this and they've seized on the opportunity. And, and I will give you that credit that I, I've said it before. The UCP should do full consultations. I would, you know, I've seen them not put politicians in front of the podium. The NDP have. If they're going to go forward as the government, absolutely, like, have have the the panel do it. Have Jim Dinning there and, and other, ec- like, experts to speak to it. By all means, I, I don't discourage the government from doing more. Uh, I would actually say, like, I've, I've stayed pretty not like neutral on this because, again, that's actually how I feel. Um, the government should have done more. The NDP did capitalize on a communication gap, and, and they're running with it. I just think they're almost pushing too far right now that it's becoming, like, distasteful. And it's actually empowering me to look more towards what are the benefits because I just think it's it's doing a disservice to people looking at the pension fully and measuring it on facts and figures, not rhetoric and grandstanding. Okay, wait. You think the NDP is doing a disservice to Albertans by holding full consultations and by continuing to talk about this. By politicizing the F out of it. <laughs> I think the government is doing a disservice to Albertans by not having a fulsome consultation that leaves open the opportunity for people to say, I don't want to leave CPP. And I think if we just like, I know you don't want to, but let's just take Rachel at her word for a second and believe that when they have hundreds of people turn out at their events, 80 to 98% of people are opposed to leaving CPP. Let's just pretend that that is, you know, that we're going to trust that data. If that's true, because even in public polling, we've seen that this isn't a slam dunk, like this isn't an obvious play 
for the UCP. It's not like a majority of people have been begging the government to put forward this proposal. So what what is the political win for the UCP here? Like, is this an affordability play? We'll make your paychecks a little bit bigger because we promise your contributions are going to be lower. Or is this part of a slower march towards a conversation about sovereignty? Like, what's the political gain for the UCP from doing something that at to be generous mm-hmm. is not popular? I think that their strategy has shifted. Um, I think that they've seen, you know, that it hasn't maybe landed as is. They committed to releasing it. They committed to looking at it. And I don't think that they were intending to get the type of maybe pushback or criticism um, that they've received. So when she talks about a hidden agenda, I'm actually like, where where is the UCP right now? They're not really talking about it. They've said that they're going to take this time to let the chair, Jim Dinning, come back with recommendations. I've said I hope that it goes to consultation and true consultation with no politicians there driving what they believe is in the best interest of Albertans. Um, and going through that process again, like if you look at the timeline, this doesn't this process doesn't end um, till till the spring. But I think they came out hard. Um, as we saw, uh, you know, trying to explain to Albertans, I said I've they've missed the mark on really diving beneath the surface on what this means for Albertans. Um, so I think they've we've seen a shift actually in their strategy. I don't think it's to 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 drive people towards something now. I think that they're sitting back digesting it. Like you said, the NDP have opportunized on that that space that the UCP didn't fill from a communications. But <clears throat> as government, I actually appreciate that they're sitting back assessing and they may come forward with, you know, we're not moving ahead with it. We're moving ahead with it. We're going to go to this consultation. For me, I, I think that the politics that we're seeing right now um, around the pension is, again, a disservice to Albertans because it doesn't lead with facts and figures. It drives emotions and good on the NDP to jump in and, and, and take the airwaves on this. Um, strategically, that's, that's a smart move for them, but the government, I don't think should react to that. I think the government should sit there and be the government because Rachel Notley's acting like the leader of the opposition, not someone that wants to be the premier and the premier and the government need to act like the government. Did you like, like that little one I got in there at the end? She, she's, <laughs> she's the one holding the consultations. She's the one holding the consultations on a massive piece. This isn't inconsequential. This is people's retirement security. This is what they've worked their whole lives for. It's not inconsequential. And where the government has not done the right thing in terms of leading with facts and figures, in terms of making sure people have a fulsome understanding of what the implications of this could be, Rachel is acting like the premier, I would argue. But she's she, she's up falsifying, said, like you said, you. government shouldn't be involved in consultations if you're the government. And Rachel is front and center at these consultations, acting like the opposition leader. I think she is over politicizing. I think she's overplaying her hand on this. I think she found a good strategy in a good lane. And now she's leaning too hard into it that I think if she's scaled back, she'd actually get a win off of this um, and like show that. Win? That if she wants her message to get to the government, she's over politicizing it and it's starting to fall, for, even for me, on deaf ears. I'm like, ugh, another but, thing about a, a faux consultation. To me, these are not real consultations and they're not ones but, that are going to get the government's attention in the same way because it's the NDP screaming and shouting as opposed to Albertans um, allowing them to have their voice and to be heard. 
Well, and, and I would argue that you are the like you have just said the government has changed course in terms of how they're approaching uh, dealing with CPP, and I believe that that is in large part because the NDP has raised this issue because it has raised the lack of consultations and because it has allowed Albertans to speak out about their concerns about this proposal, and. Their job isn't to send a message to the government. Their job is to send a message to Albertans and build their credibility over the course of an election cycle. And by stepping in where the government has failed, that's exactly what they're doing. And they're holding the government accountable. Like if the work that they're doing has pushed the government to rethink its approach to CPP, they've done their job. And I I don't think what I don't think the government would be listening to the grandstanding of the NDP. I think they'd be focused and as they should be on the Albertans, right? So there's other ways for Albertans to do this than Rachel Notley rallies that we're seeing at these consultations. I think that you and I are going to say, you know, you'll say it's a consultation. I'll say it's a faux consultation. I'll, I'll own. It's good. They're like, they're, they're doing their job as opposition. Um, where I haven't seen them doing a good job of opposition is actually in a clip that we have coming up. Uh, do you want to intro it, Cheryl? Sure. Uh, this was an example, and I I think it's one of probably a string of examples where the NDP have dragged up a clip of uh, Daniel Smith, Premier Daniel Smith, flip-flopping. So this is a clip from, I believe, 2014, uh, where Daniel Smith, Smith is speaking passionately, this time in opposition, uh, in favor of CPP. PC government has once again re- resorted to bullying our public sector unions rather than negotiating in good faith. Instead of getting a deal on pension reforms through tough but fair negotiations with union leaders, the PCs are again bringing down the legislative hammer, potentially smashing apart pension arrangements that thousands of Alberta frontline workers have built their future plans on. They're now going for broke with these premature and unnecessary changes to pension plans that will impact 200,000 workers. We get to show listeners a behind the curtains of what not to do as a political research working in opposition. And so I was actually in the Premier's office at this time, uh, thrown speech. It was uh, the end of uh, Premier Redford's tenure. Uh, this is Bill 9. Where they've gone wrong is this isn't CPP. The whole bill is about LAPP. It's about union negotiations. It's about local authorities' pension plans. And that's very, very different than the CPP. We've talked about how I think that the government and the NDP are not explaining the difference to some people that don't know CPP versus your union through your employer, which this one is looking at is reforming some of those requirements through uh, collective bargaining. And so this is completely irrelevant to her position on CPP, which since 2019, she actually in the Fair Deal panel was exploring this. She's supported it. This is a totally different jurisdictional uh, situation. It's a totally different um, process. This is not about, you know, the um, potential funds that could come back into the pockets. They're already there and it's for individuals that work and fall under the LAPP. So the fact that opposition researchers dug this up and they think that that's how you can say that a decade ago, um, Premier Smith believed in the CPP is is 
farce. It's actually like comical. Uh, I, I'm like, I'm embarrassed for them. I'm like, man, I got some good researchers that I've worked with over the years. Maybe we can uh, share some best practices on, okay, on what to okay. do. <laughs> Let's keep it kind. Hey, um, like I would they, say, they gotta know. When, they gotta know. This is not right. When, when you're explaining, you're losing. And I think what this clip shows is that at a certain point, Daniel Smith was very concerned about the stability of people's retirement security. And that is a big change from what she's proposing now and the position she's proposing now. And so you're right. Maybe it's not an exact comparison, but I think it adds to what is already um, an argument that Albertans feel is not credible and is not based in logic. And so the, the opposition's job is to pile on to that. And I think they've done that with this clip, whether it's fair or not. Point taken on, on you know, if you have to explain you're losing. This is not the same thing. And again, I think when we have a lack of trust in politicians, regardless of if you're government and opposition, um, you you... The NDP, to me, has run false narratives quite a bit. Um, we saw it, you know, the fear mongering, the grandstanding. But never the UCP, right? The UCP I didn't say that. We're talking about you guys there. lying about the CPP versus the LAPP. I said about the pension, like, I wish there was actually a what is the CPP 101? What is the difference between between what you would get from the CPP? Who actually pays into it? Because that is very different than the LAPP. So... I get the attempt at this. It's just bad research. It's just bad opposition positioning because it discredits the message you're trying to to convey. And again, it's a decade old. Like if this was her, you know, in October or her from her radio show or something along those lines, she's been talking about, you know, getting Alberta more more money back in Alberta. And I, I think it's I think it just misses the mark. Um, on what Let's the NDP about- was trying to achieve. I'm not talking about a radio show. <laughs> but, but like, let's talk about false narratives then. Like, okay, you don't like that the NDP dragged up a clip and painted it as a position broadly on CPP when that's what it was not. Fair criticism. Um, but when we're talking about false narratives, the idea that the Alberta government put out numbers to people about what kind of returns we could expect from APP and what kind of pull Alberta would get from CPP should we choose to leave that have been, again, to be generous, um, argued with, to be not generous, kind of debunked in terms of what those numbers mean and what the returns would be like. To me, that's a false narrative to tell people that if we leave CPP and we have our own APP, we're going to have lower contributions and higher returns. That's a false narrative. So it's, it's um, not from a report. And again, like if the federal government came out and said, this is the actual number that would be transferred to you and this is what you would be entitled to. And they and they totally shut down the, you know, 350 billion. Fair. I think that the UCB would have to uh, humbly walk back what they said and, and they would have to do a lot to regain the trust of Albertans on that. Again, I think that this is like one of the things and an ideology aside that like, I think that the NDP do is again, like this is 
to me, really unfair and fear mongering. Like you're scaring more people about this and you're scaring seniors about their CPP with stuff like this. Like it's just bad politics. Uh, and I, I'm sorry, like I, I would say that if if our the UCP caucus put out stuff like this and be like, ugh, fact check, please. Um, and, and, you know, you can pivot it and just be like, this is LAPP. This is nothing. This isn't even about the pension. And I get what they're trying to do. I just think that they need to do due diligence before pushing clips out like this. And again, it's a very angry, scary, sad, desperate approach to what I think they could actually get across far better and properly. Uh, agree to disagree. I think they're doing a great job <laughs> and they have, uh, really, focused on this and made incredible progress on it through the session. We cover a lot of politics in this show. And if you're feeling like you'd like to get deeper into the nitty gritty of what we've been discussing, our sponsor Pocket Lobbyist is an incredible resource that helps you dive into the policy, the background and the implications of government decisions. You can find out more in a free session that they're hosting on December 14th at noon Mountain Time. It's a 30-minute webinar outlining political and business risk for 2024. You can find out more and become a member by visiting pocketlobbyist.com. And we have a special discount for listeners of the discourse that will get you two months free if you sign up before December 31st. That's a savings of $300. Just sign in and use the code DXP monthly. All right. Well, I love saying this. Danielle Smith stuck it to the feds uh, again this week, hammering back on what she says is a federal government's unconstitutional overreach on reducing methane emissions. The federal government announced uh, a target of at least 75% reductions from the 2012 goals by 2030. Now, this is also uh, you know, frustrating to the government of Alberta because last week they came out announcing uh, that they had actually reached their tar targets three years ahead of time and at 45% reduction. So, the premier is actually at COP, as we talked about last week, COP28 in Dubai. But the Minister of Energy, Brian Jean, uh, reiterated her message in a video on X that we're going to play right now to bring you all up to speed. Our premier is exactly right in her statement on Guibault's unconstitutional proposed methane emissions regulations. The feds don't know this file at all, and grandstanding at COP doesn't do anything to help global emissions. Attacking Alberta industries won't reduce emissions in the countries that are releasing the most CO2 and the most methane. Tacking on $15 billion in costs to Canada's energy industry will not have any measurable impact on global emissions. Indeed, the federal government's own regulatory impact statement admits that Canada's energy industry makes up less than half of Canada's methane emissions. I think this is an overswing. Like, I, like, I hate the Sovereignty Act. I hate that Daniel Smith has made fighting the feds her entire political brand. But when she fought back on the clean energy regs, there was like a granule of logic. And I think she's undermined that by again threatening to invoke the Sovereignty Act for a target that Alberta will likely reach. And oil and gas, you know, worldwide has said is achievable. Um, in this case, I don't think that her rhetoric or the invocation of the Sovereignty Act is necessary. And I also find it duplicitous to talk about how incredible Alberta has me has been in reaching its 20, uh, 2030 targets ahead of schedule and then all and then saying that there's no way that we can do this. 
So if this is possible, if Alberta could do this, like, I don't understand why we need to use this as another opportunity to, your word, political grandstand. Yeah, so I, it's, I believe 2025, so I don't know if it's two or three years, I've seen both, but um, just on timing. But oh, I think you're right, 2025. Yeah, so, so we're looking at another five years to go from 45 to 75 when, you know, methane equals uh, emissions from oil and gas. So again, I think this is a move of the federal government to go hard against the oil and gas industry. And again, I've said like, I'd love if the government never had to use the Sovereignty Act, but I think in the CER, in the clean energy regs, this is, um, that was, that was a smart move because it showed the symbolism of get out of, get, get in your lane. Um, what I've seen though, at, from, from watching the Dubai COP28 is, the federal government isn't really making friends. They're not really being taken seriously. And so I just, I don't understand why you would take this Alberta, federal, like Alberta, Ottawa, um, you know, disagreement overseas and why you would announce it there. It just, the announcement of the methane reduction when you haven't gone into rooms with, you know, Japan and China and uh, India and had the conversations, um, you know, that you're going to work together on that. Why Why would Guibo make this an international uh, announcement when they're, they're, very, they're a very small player in doing this? I just, I don't understand the strategy and I know you're not part of the, the liberal uh, team, but like it just, it seems like they're now trying to fight back on the provincial government and then they're actually elevating this um, to an international stage, which I don't, I, I think that this is the government of Alberta responding to, to that. And do I think they could tone it down a little? Probably. But I also think that this is one where we've seen the federal government come back and go double down on, you know, screw you, Alberta. And so I don't know how you don't take what Gibo did as an Albertan. Um, you know, I think it's distasteful. That feels a little vain on the part of Alberta for me. Like this is a conference meant for countries to come to the table and talk about how we get to our shared climate goals together. And that is what the federal government has done is go to the conference with announcements to make about how it sees Canada reaching those goals. Um, this methane reduction should not have been a controversial issue. This is an issue. This is a, a target that Alberta has been an incredible um has demonstrated incredible progress on that industry has de dedicate has demonstrated incredible progress on um and likely we will continue to make incredible progress on we should be what the world is watching and instead faced with the fact that daniel smith doesn't like that the federal government said it first she's undermining all the progress that alberta has made and on a world stage and i think if anyone's taking the fight to the world stage it's daniel smith so you said that this is when international leaders are supposed to come to the table. If Gibo would have come out with a MOU, a memorandum of understanding with anyone saying that they're going to work together to achieve these types of targets in tangent, take the win and freaking run with it. This is him talking about it. Again, timing sucks because it does look like a direct attack on Alberta's announcement last week. You, you take the, the success or the, air, the oxygen out of this when you say you disregard Alberta reaching this. So 2012 to 2025, say 12, 13 years to get to 45%, we're doing great, but it's almost like, you know what, that's not good enough. 
And so we now expect you to get to 75, which ultimately will have an impact on the oil and gas industry. It we're doing great, but that's a huge number to get from like from um, the 45 to 70 or 75. So I, I just I think that it's like trying to set Alberta up for failure and not giving us credit where credit's deserved. And so coming back to like what I think Gibo how he could have politically won this again, methane shouldn't be the fight that we have uh, overseas. But again, he didn't come with any type of strategic negotiations, partnerships, education of, you know, a bunch of countries like there's opportunity. A huge announcement would have been having an MOU with one of those three countries to actually show that they're working internationally and not just using COP as as an announcement that, you know, kind of jabs your one of your jurisdictions. But ditto for Alberta, like, first of all. This has largely been said by oil and gas, by economists, by other experts. This has largely been uh, characterized as achievable. And if that is the case, but Alberta just wants to say, don't impede on our jurisdiction, rather than stamp your feet and threaten to invoke the Sovereignty Act again, develop an equivalency. Like, let's make a made in Alberta plan. That is how we got to exceeding our targets for 2025. The Alberta NDP created a plan for methane emissions reduction, and the UCP is doing a victory lap on having achieved it. The UCP can implement its own plan. It doesn't, it, the, we don't have to follow the federal government. If we truly believe that we can do it better, and we truly believe that our industry is not being um, adequately considered, then let's put forward our own plan and let's, you know, sign an agreement with the federal government saying that Alberta can do it better. But just saying I oppose it for the sake of opposing it and I threaten again to invoke the Sovereignty Act, that just impedes any progress that any of us are making. I love this agreement you want to have with the feds. It's like very sunshines and rainbows. But, you know, the it's NDP... not sunshines and rainbows, though. Like this has happened before. Saskatchewan currently has an equivalency agreement. Like these are real. You don't like what the federal government is doing. You don't want them in your jurisdiction. Good. Replace it with something local. I mean, Saskatchewan also does have Sask First, which is equivalent to the Sovereignty Act. They fortunately don't have to use it. But put yourself in the government shoes, because if you're getting, you're feeling beat up, you're feeling like this person is working against you, all of these things, doesn't this add salt to the wound? Like, I know it's one issue. I think that this is, again, the built up frustration. And do we see maybe um, more emotion and frustration coming from the government because of that? But like they've been beat up or feel like they've been beat up for for years and many Albertans feel that as well so I think that looking at this in silo um, you know doesn't explain why we've got to this like battle back and forth between Alberta and Ottawa I would love <laughs> if they could come to an agreement I think that there could have been you know the government could have led with we are leaders and this is what um, we've done and we're going to continue to exceed our targets. However, what the federal government has done is not in consultation with us um, or any, like there wasn't any talks, there wasn't any heads up. And usually that does happen f with, you know, feds and other jurisdictions or um, places. So I think that it's important to see that this is also as a result of a lot of animosity back and forth. And so it's not just one issue. This is, again, the feeling of being beat up by Ottawa and not, a, not quote unquote, getting our fair deal. And this was just another jab. So I think it, it 
like you said, we're seeing more emotion and frustration than maybe needed, but this is a long time coming. And it was just a one on an international stage that, you know, deflated the great work and didn't give credit to Alberta for what we have achieved. He didn't even mention it. Okay. And, and you know, I, I think Alberta does deserve incredible um, applause and recognition for everything that it has achieved, because I do think that our sector is doing incredible things to reduce emissions and um, develop technologies for decarbonization. For me, I don't care if the if the Alberta government is frustrated. I don't care if they're feeling emotional. I want them to do what's in the best interest of me as an Albertan in every decision that they make. And I would like to see them prioritize progress on the things that matter to Albertans above the performative acts that get them on the front page. And, you know, we can make arguments about the CER, but in this case, they put political gain ahead of progress for Alberta. I think we agree that we would want the government to always do what's in the best interest of Albertans. I think where we maybe disagree is on the approach of it. Again, I am all facts and figures, remove emotions. Um, I think we are seeing some some extra frustration from the government. So there could be some refinement in, in the deliverance of some of these messages. Um, but I think what they're doing is what they believe uh, is in the best interest of Albertans. And you know, I think we, we got to leave it there where we, we actually kind of agree on on the outcome. It's just how we we expect our government to get there. Well, we're speaking of international things. Uh, do you know who is internationally recognized as the best place to get your closets? You guessed it. Our sponsor, California Closets. But they aren't just closet experts. Some of my favorite things about California Closets is their small details like their lighting and finish solutions. Their finish palette will make your home feel a little more you. With warm and cool colors and textural wood grains to choose from, you can design the perfect space based on your needs and styles. They will also help you transform your space from ordinary to extraordinary with well-designed integrated lighting. This would be a giant step up for me from using my iPhone light to go through my closet and drawers in the dark as I try to avoid waking up my husband, which I can attest has a very low success rate. I highly encourage you to check out California Closet Solutions for your home. Visit californiaclosets.ca today. Well, before we wrap up today, let's do a quick look at the session as the House has risen and look back at what the parties accomplished and whether we think they accomplished what they set out to do when the throne speech uh, began the session earlier this year. So, Erica, what did the UCP accomplish? Well, they passed all of their bills. I think the most exciting <laughs> thing was the shocking to no one because they have a majority government and one opposition party. I, I would say you and I both lived through some pretty action packed and some pretty uh, boring legislative sessions. This probably falls closer on this snoreboard of, of items coming through. I think the most exciting was like last night lighting of the, the the lights at the legislature that was electrifying. Um, but, you know, they passed all their bills. They moved it through where I actually um, think, and, and a lot of them were campaign promises and, and some housekeeping items, where I actually think, given all the other things that were going on, where the government actually didn't... Um, 
you know, talk about uh, or advertise or or praise themselves for was actually Bill One. This was one that was a campaign commitment. Uh, Bill One is the Alberta uh, Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act. And this is where they uh, have said that it will go to a referendum before increasing taxes. That's pretty big. Um, It's pretty bold. It sounds, again, maybe not as exciting, but this is a commitment by the government to not increase taxes unless Albertans um, give them the the go-ahead. Now, the reason I think this is interesting is actually because this is now going to have to be repealed by any other government or maybe this government if we're in a fiscal situation that is dire and requires um, increase. Uh, referendums are not cheap and they take a lot of planning. So in order to you can't really make fast decisions on this. Uh, I think it's going to put, should the NDP ever be in in government in the future, in a pretty sticky spot to have to repeal, um, you know, tax increases where it wasn't very hard for us to repeal the carbon tax. We ran on it. Um, I like the way you think. I look forward to the NDP being back in government as well. <laughs> it's and, a long time uh, from now. <laughs> and I like, okay, so I understand the politics associated with the bill. I think it's just dumb in a province that relies so heavily on resource revenue, where a province that has been through ups and downs in what that revenue looks like, and a province that has refused up until this point to consider a provincial sales tax. To say we are going to control our tax measures through a referendum in those cases, that seems illogical to me. But I understand the politics. In terms of what was accomplished this session, um, obviously the NDP's job as opposition is to oppose. It's to try to raise a subject, to try to poke holes in the government's credibility. And I think as we've talked about on CPP, They've done that. They have raised this issue. They have held town halls across the province. They continue to um, until the end of the year. And they have um, really demonstrated that the government is not up to the task of fully consulting with Albertans. They also continued to raise health care, which is still one of the number one issues that Albertans care about, and the threat that the UCP might privatize at least portions of the health care system. So I think if the opposition's goal is to just raise a couple of key issues that they're more trusted on throughout the entire session, the NDP has done a pretty good job on this. What I have found strange about this session, in addition to Bill 1, is that typically when you have a new government come in, their first year and their first session is basically a push to implement the mandate that they've got from the people in terms of what their platform looked like in the election. And I don't think we saw super traditional platforms in this election, but there was a string of really key commitments. In terms of this first session, Daniel Smith has gone way off book. Like she intentionally did not run on CPP. Um, and we're, we're, we're seeing her spend, you know, a lot of airtime and bandwidth talking about it. We saw her promise a tax cut in the uh, election campaign. We saw her promise things like discounts to seniors that's the kind of stuff I would have expected to see in the session, a plan to move forward with how to implement the, these things. But when the government is pushed on where is this stuff, they don't have an answer. I would actually agree that this session is is different. You know, usually your first session after an election win, like guns ablazing, you're coming in and putting all of those campaign commitments. There is 
sprinkling of them. I mean, you've got the the Public Health Amendment Act. We have seen a reform of AHS during this uh, fall session or this period of time since the election. We've seen, um, obviously, addressing of the Pension Protection Act, which I'm sure we could argue about the the intention of, of bringing a bill forward that says you won't do something as opposed to you will. This is why I'm actually surprised about Bill 1, because it was one of those key campaign things about keeping your taxes low, protecting the money in your pocket. And I think if they would have actually run on that narrative, they could have taken um, a lot of maybe wind out of the sails of the NDP as opposition. So I do think the NDP found their they sunk their teeth into the issues that they wanted to run with. Um I'm surprised that there wasn't maybe a few more big nuggets, but what we saw is, and what we know is like the legislative session is sometimes setting you up for future announcements uh, and strategic moves where we've still seen a lot of the reform to health happen. We've seen a lot of uh, decisions being made around, uh, you know, what setting them up with announcements in education, um, announcements in post-secondary, announcements in mental health and addictions. Um, we've seen some of these things come forward. And then uh, seniors care and shelters, we've seen a lot of. So a lot of that stuff can actually happen out of legislative session. Again, I don't think right now they're turning the the dial to talk about those those things that they're doing behind the scenes as opposed to in the house. Um, so maybe that's what we'll see between you know between now and the next legislative session. Now I have to ask you because everyone is wondering: Is this Rachel Notley's last legislative session? There's been talks about who's going to step up. Um, there's been articles about speculations about who. Rachel's done a very very good job of being the leader and being the brand. So I think regardless of whoever steps into those shoes, it's going to be a challenge. But there's also been discussions about stepping away from the federal NDP. So is that all part of the puzzle of like not making Rachel front and center as the NDP? And, you know, you got any hot goss for us about (laughs) what you know or don't know? Or can we speculate this is her last legislative session? Well, I think there's always speculation, especially in the wake of an election loss. But um Rachel hasn't made a decision yet. And I don't think there is an imminent um, plan for her to announce a decision on her future. So I don't know if this is her last session. And I think a lot of that gossip around what the future of the party looks like and what the brand looks like is to be expected when you, you know, take a hard look at what went right and what went wrong in, in an election loss. So no, in short, I have very little gossip for you, but I look forward to uh, seeing Rachel lead the party through the new year and into 2024. So just a, just a quick question before we close to follow up on that is, I mean, I look at it as like from a political operations standpoint, you do need to, should, should we expect or what I'm expecting to see, and maybe you can, you can agree or disagree is a shift over the next year or whatever it's going to be for, for Rachel's political runway of seeing more people come front and center, seeing Rachel try to boost the party brand, um, position them because again, like she is very instrumental, um, and, and it will be difficult for, for her to not be associated with the NDP. So for the success of the, like, for the success of the NDP, I feel like we're going to need to start seeing a transition and it's not going to be as abrupt as maybe um, we've seen with other with other leaders stepping down um, because, you know, she's she's very much the brand. But that's also going to be a challenge as the NDP find a new leader. 
I think you could expect no matter what Rachel decides to do in her political career that she will always and long be associated with the NDP. Um, but I think it's natural. I mean, Rachel has um, sort of launched this conversation by saying that she will, you know, eventually make a decision about her future and announce it to the public. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised that there's conversations about what those next steps could look like or what the the next leader of the NDP, no matter when it happens, uh, could be. Yeah, I think these are all natural discussions. And I think that, you know, the stuff that happens behind the scenes is all natural as well. And I think, you know, we'll just wait to see when Rachel's ready to talk about what her future looks like. That is our show. Um, this is the last episode of our pilot series. So we're going to take a little break over the holidays, but you can catch up on old episodes and connect with us on Instagram and X. And we'll see you in 2024. The Discourse is hosted by Cheryl Oates and Erica Barudis. Follow on Instagram at The Discourse Pod. Subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts.